Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And we have something of an international podcasting collaboration for you this week, featuring a fairly famous Indian podcaster by the name of Kushal Mehra, whom you might also know as a Quillette essayist. Kushal, who runs the Karvaka podcast, spends most of the year in India, but also travels to Toronto every summer as he is married to a Canadian woman. That's when he and I like to get together to record something, and our 2023 installment was recorded earlier this week at the Quillette Studios, aka my dining room here in Toronto. And we covered a bunch of topics. Mostly, Kushal wanted to ask me about my recently published co-authored Quillette article, When Trans Activism Becomes Government Policy, which I wrote with Margaret Wente. His questions on that subject led to a discussion about the differing Indian and North American approaches to the gender debate. We also talked about concerns that the fixation on creating new genders is turning into a sort of rainbow religion for youth. This, in turn, got me going about other secularized quasi-religions here in Canada that have become popular in progressive Canadian society. Whenever I come in Toronto, I message Jonathan. I was like, John, are you around? And he's nice enough. He said, come on over. So we are at John's house. We're recording this podcast at John's house. And as you know, the the tradition of the Charvak podcast is... (laughs) I go to people's houses and I start recording podcasts with them. John, um, we did speak last year. Last time it was, uh, you know, I was speaking with you uh, for the Quillette podcast. So we've we've turned it around to this time it's going to be you. But uh, on the outset, John, I was just telling you offline too, that when I read this essay that you've written, I was um, disturbed. This is an issue I think that affects everyone in the sense that there are all sorts of psychological difficulties and challenges associated with growing up. I think anyone listening to this who's, <laughs> whose age is in double digits can identify with that. None of us have a perfect adolescence. Mm-hmm. And there is a movement, especially in the West, uh, and especially in English-speaking countries, where a lot of people who are experiencing these, these very common difficulties associated with adolescence and sexuality uh, and the changes in their life associated with puberty, they they unfortunately become vulnerable to the idea that somehow they were born in the wrong body, that they want to escape that body. Mm-hmm. It began, I think, as, as a very well-intentioned movement to help these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, to a certain extent, in Canada especially, it's gone overboard, and now the activist campaign to encourage young people to express the difficulties they're facing in life as being born in the wrong body and requiring surgery and pills and in in some cases surgically altering their body and even sterilizing themselves it it has become a kind of in at least some subcultures in Canada including unfortunately education it's become a very cultish movement and there's very little pushback in Canada i think in other countries especially in the united states you see a kind of culture war between people who are extremely socially conservative and, mm-hmm. and, and to my mind go too far. They actually are transphobic um, in some cases. Yeah. But in Canada, there's really only one side of the debate that's been represented in any effective way. And it's pushed the entire Canadian 
educational and political and even media establishment in the direction of a kind of puritanical movement that encourages young people to blame being born in the wrong body for many of the problems they face in life. And it's, it's, it's having tragic consequences. You know why it's very interesting is because in my culture, as people, uh, maybe most people don't know, kinner, you know, kinners are an integral part of our culture. I'm not saying Indian culture does not have transphobes or anything of that sort. I'm not even making that claim, but, you know, kinners are always around us. By the way, just because we're going to be cross posting this on the Quillette podcast, can you just tell my listeners what, what kinders are? So kinner, uh, uh, I don't know what the English word would. Some people use the word eunuchs or yeah. some people call them hermaphrodites in English. These are all very loaded. I mean, a eunuch is somebody, a male who's has surgically removed their testicles. Yeah, but in this case, I think uh, some... Some uh, humans are just born uh, in, with certain uh, preconditions. Intersex? Uh, it, it, it's not even intersex. It's so, it's so complicated that it's not even intersex. When I was going through the definition of uh, trans, uh, what, what does it entail to be a transgender in India? And I started comparing it with the debates over here. I was like, wait, what are we fighting about? Uh, like in India, it was not even an issue. And India officially has recognized three genders since 1947 as a democracy, as a civilization for 6,000 years. India always has. It's, it's a very normal thing in India. We have three genders in India, male, female, and kinner. And now the, the basic difference between the West and India is India just kept on accepting subcategories under kinner. What percentage of the population self-identifies as kinder? Kinner, I think it's not more than Two to three percent. Two to three percent. Nothing more than that. Okay. And and if you look at government forms in India, you will always see male, female, and other. They will give you the option. And this has been a very normal thing since years in India, which is why. And when I find uh, the visceral reactions over here, I find it very fascinating as an Indian. But the problem is that when does a reality become a social contagion? Hmm. I guess that's where the line has to be drawn, right? So first of all, I should say that Canada and other Western countries have, in recent decades, enacted laws to protect the legitimate rights of people who identify as transgender, making sure, for instance, that like, you can't just be fired for your job from your job or thrown out of your apartment because you identify as trans. These are what I would call normal liberal human rights policies, and, and they're, they're quite welcome. It was probably in the late 2010s that this issue started to really become a culture war flashpoint because that's when I think a lot of maybe culture critics would say it stopped becoming a normal liberal anti-discrimination movement, which certainly people like me welcomed, and started to become more of an active means for people to expand the idea of gender dysphoria. People stopped seeing it as something that should be accommodated in the same way as religion should be accommodated and race should be accommodated as a way to prevent discrimination against those groups. And it became more of a promoted means of explaining away a broad range of difficulties that people face in society, people maybe suffering trauma, people who are wrestling with their sexual orientation and maybe are looking for an alternative explanation for why they're attracted to people of the same sex. And you started to see the numbers explode 
in particular, you started to see the numbers of trans-identified people explode among young female adults, teenagers, adolescents, often in clusters. Lisa Lippman, who's a researcher who was then affiliated with Brown University, uh, did the first published the first peer-reviewed research on what came to be known as ROGD, which rapid onset gender dysphoria, where you had groups of girls would suddenly all declare that they were were trans. That's not the only explanation for gender dysphoria. There are some mm-hmm. people who really do suffer legitimate forms of gender dysphoria. And I think if it's persistent, they they certainly deserve access to therapies, which I should say that some conservative Republican states, they're trying to deny them that, which I don't think is the right policy. But as this social contagion started growing, so did the, the idea that you're not allowed to talk about the social contagion because if you talk about it, it means you're less likely to support what came to be called affirmation. And affirmation is the idea that you just, when a child of whatever age comes forward and declares themselves to be transgender, you just automatically reflexively affirm that self-conception and proceed to therapies, which eventually often do include, unfortunately, dangerous pharmacological and surgical therapies that can result in horrible side effects and sterilization. What grown adults do should not be anybody's problem, in my view. Mm -hmm. After the age of 18, I mean, there could be a debate. uh, Science says that the frontal lobe is developed after the age of 25, so should we... I mean, you need to pick some legal. Yeah. So we need to pick some legal point. So, I mean, I'm personally fine with 18 Mm -hmm. after what grown adults do with their body after the age of 18 is none of my business. But for the benefit of uh, Quillette uh, listeners, John, I do have the definition of a transgender, the legal definition of the transgender as per the Transgender Protection of Rights Bill 2019. This is in India. Yeah. By the Ministry of Social Justice and Welfare. There is a social justice ministry in India, in case people did not know. And it says this bill defines a transgender person as one whose gender does not match the gender assigned at birth. It includes, and this is where the uh, expansion comes, trans men and trans women, persons with intersex variations, gender queers, and persons with sociocultural identities such as Kinnar and Hijra. So they have clearly separated them too. Intersex variations is defined to mean a person who at birth shows variation in his or her primary sexual characteristics, external genitalia, chromosomes or hormones from the normative standard of male or female body. So it's a very comprehensive definition. And this is India. And they have done it. And why this bill was done was basically you cannot now discriminate against any of these people in residence, in employment, in education, in healthcare. It, it sounds like a kind of standard anti-discrimination law, yes. which is great. Yeah. Just to be clear, I know very few people here in Canada who would object to that kind of legislation. I mean, we've had that kind of legislation in Canada for many years, it's, and it wasn't particularly controversial, nor should it be controversial. What became controversial was when, in the late 2010s, when what was originally an anti-discrimination movement felt more like a socio-political movement that some people felt had a recruitment aspect to it, um, where you had people in schools who were encouraging children to maybe blame a lot of their problems in life, because everyone has problems, um, on this phenomenon. And it 
started to become embedded in government policy in a way that went beyond anti-discrimination. So I think it's very interesting that, that India is up to date on this. I think it's great. Liberal anti-discrimination laws are foundational building block of humane democratic society. But what we're looking at, especially in Canada, goes, goes beyond the kind of phenomenon that that kind of law, I believe, was designed to address. Okay. I got very confused with this paragraph in your essay where you said in 2022, Trudeau's government announced something called 2SLGBTQI plus action plan. Like you said, the digits never end, first of all. Yeah. And and then it says, which was described as a quote, a whole of government approach to achieve a future where everyone in Canada is truly free to be who they are and love who they love. Now, what does this mean that if you're a kid and if you want to get a surgery, even if your parents don't consent to it, it will be allowed? I certainly don't think it's as simple as a child just showing up to a clinic. Although you have had child services official go after parents who were not willing to, quote unquote, affirm their child's belief that they were born in the wrong body, which to me, the idea of being born in the wrong body is, is a kind of religious idea. It's um, almost like you want to exercise spirits from your body. And I, that, that's one of the reasons I object to some of the extremes in this movement, because they, it does have religious overtones. It seems like almost like an ersatz religious faith. And what many parents complain about, and not just like religious Christians and not just religious Muslims, although they've been at the, on, on the lead of this pushback, uh, but also many lesbian and gay activists who believe that this is a campaign that's homophobic. How? In the sense that you have, in many many examples, you have a confused gay teenager who is being bullied because they're gay. To them, the way to resolve the cognitive dissonance is say, well, I'm really straight. It's just I'm a straight person who's trapped in this gay body. Yeah. And it becomes a way to reinvent yourself in a way that, you know, maybe now I won't be bullied. Maybe now I'll be a new person. Maybe those negative feelings belong to a person in the past which is why you get this stigma against dead naming. Can you explain what dead naming is? So let's say I'm, my name is John Kay. And I say, no, my name isn't really John. It's uh, Brenda. And anybody who calls me John is performing this hate, hate crime because they're referring to this person in the past who no longer exists. I'm now female. Uh, when I was male, I was tortured and everything was horrible because the world didn't see me. I didn't see myself as I truly was. Um, it's, it's a kind of born again idea, right? Like referring to yourself, you know, as a pagan when really, you know, now I'm a Christian and don't talk about my pagan life. That's, that's, that's a horrible period of my life. I want to confine to the past. That's fascinating. The, the dead naming thing I find very creepy. I, I've written, written about this elsewhere. I have a friend who went to, it was a, effectively a lesbian wedding here in Canada, which is it's fine. It's very common. Yeah. Uh, it's been common here for, for decades. But one of the women very recently started identifying as a man. And in the photos that were at the wedding and in the speeches, no one was allowed to refer to the period of this person's life before they had transitioned a couple of years ago. So, you know, all the photos on the table, all the speeches were kind of done in this very unsettling, thought-controlled way, like time began a few years ago in this person's life. They were just sort of like dropped from a spaceship onto the earth as a man, 
and everything preceding it was this no-go zone in terms of showing pictures of them or their art projects, anything that showed that they were actually a girl or a woman. And to me, that's like a very Soviet way of reinventing history. In the Christian cultural tradition, the, the, the idea of a road to Damascus moment when, you know, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the great founder of the Christian church, like on a smaller scale, there are a lot of equivalents to that in these movements where um, people have an epiphany and they realize who their true self is. There's, I mean, putting aside gender and religion, there's a lot of like self-help movements that are based on this idea. Uh, you know, Tony Robbins, you know, like discovering the person within, discovering the giant within, the idea that there's this incredibly confident, successful person buried in the soul of, of everyone around you. You just have to discover them. And to some extent, the really activist fringes of the, tra the trans movement, because it has, has many components, does kind of resemble that, where once you discover this essence of a person you are, you're just going to be happy and fulfilled and you're going to radiate, they call it trans joy, trans liberation. I mean, th these phrases, I, it's in the article that, that you read, have actually become part of government literature, which again, have the air of religious literature. Sounds like somebody's writing a Bible. I don't think it's a coincidence that Canada is a... It's a post-Christian society, which, I mean, suits me fine. I'm, I'm Jewish, and I'm not especially religious, and I, uh, I, I don't want to live in a, <laughs> any kind of Christian theocracy, certainly. But there is a, uh, to, to cite a phrase, there's a God-shaped hole in the political consciousness of many Canadians. I want to talk about A it. lot of these Canadians you talk to, I mean, it's clear, in some cases, like I actually know many of the most progressive Canadians I know, they grew up in religious Christian at least culturally Christian families. Mm -hmm. And at least on some subconscious level, they're looking for some kind of replacement for the articles of faith and the rituals. And, and it isn't just the gender stuff. You also get the land acknowledgements. Like I am a settler. I am living on stolen lands. The sin that resides in my heart shall always stain my legacy. You never give it back. And, and also, and also the work of, decontaminating my soul shall be the work of a lifetime. It shall never be complete. I shall disrupt my consciousness. I shall live in uncertainty and pain. It's a confessional reflex. Yes. It's also a self-flagellation self reflex. Absolutely. And, by, and not, not to pick on Canada. I mean, we kind of all have this. Like to some extent, <laughs> guilt is part of the human condition. And it takes political expression in many societies in all kinds of movements. Um, in, in Canada right now, it's you know some of the gender stuff. But mm -hmm. every time someone says a land acknowledgement, again, very well intentioned. A lot of it, when I listen to it, kind of see the, the glassy-eyed recitation of these things. It's like these people are a church. These people are channeling some kind of cultural reflex they have. They don't quite know what to do with it because they don't go to church on Sunday. They don't go to confession. They have that reflex. And this is one of the things they put it into, this idea that, well, I might not have religious this is my new thing. sin, but I have a kind of political sin. sin. And it crosses generations. This, this to me is very creepy, that it crosses generations. You see people on Canadian social media apologizing for stuff that like their ancestors did five or six generations ago. Why should I apologize for anything? It's really creepy. Um, now, look, again, there's... 
eh, there's there's some grain of truth to it. Like, you know, if if you're a stockholder in a corporation that did horrible things 40 or 50 years ago, and you feel like, well, okay, I've profited. Or if your family did stuff when you were a kid and you knew it was wrong and you didn't say anything. I mean, I can see where the impulse comes from. Um, humans aren't just social creatures. We're ancestral creatures. We we like to honor the legacy of our relatives. And, you know, we're proud if our, if our ancestors did wonderful things. Yeah. Uh, ancestor worship is a huge part of many cultures and even survives in some. Yeah. So it, it's not as if, it's not as if Canadian progressives invented this intergenerational well, absolutely. reflex, absolutely. but it's taken expression in Canada in, in a very unsettling way. So John, in many ways, from what I get, this sounds like a crisis of meaning that happens in many yeah. Christian societies in the West. And, you know, John, a lot of it has to blame with folks like you and I, we, you know, <laughs> we, the disbelievers who attacked religion and its excesses. And then we, you know, when religion said, okay, yeah, maybe this was a little too much. We'll correct this. We kept on smashing them. We kept on smashing them. We kept on smashing them. So do you think we as uh, disbelievers, part of the movement of, okay, I am a different kind of disbeliever from an Indian pantheon, but, you know, we've all been there. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett, the four horsemen, new atheism, and look what they gave us. Sometimes the reflex to bash your own tribe becomes its own kind of tribalism. So if you live in a very intensely nationalistic environment mm -hmm. where let's even, you know, let's say you live in the United States mm -hmm. and Trump has just been elected and everyone around you is walking around with these MAGA hats and they're talking about make America great again. And they're saying things that you regard as xenophobic and build a wall. It's not unnatural that you would go on social media and say, my tribe does not include these people. My tribe is the people who push back against this. And that becomes its own kind of tribe, a sort of anti-nationalist, a sort of anti-tribe. And social media makes it very easy to create an anti-tribe because Twitter in particular rewards oppositional postures. Absolutely. Oppositional postures. By the way, in some parts of the world, that can become very, very dangerous. If you're, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you say, well, you know what? My, my oppositional tribe is I hate Wahhabism. And I'm going to start. I'm going to start a YouTube channel where I talk about how horrible Wahhabism is. You're going to end up in jail. In the United States and Canada, on the other hand, you're going to end up an assistant professor at a local college. We live in a society, or Canada, which I kind of like. I mean, I like the fact that you can make a career and a reputation by opposing the dominant culture. However, in Canada, especially, I would say that anti-tribe, that mm -hmm. tribe built built around guilt and bashing what Canada was and people who say the occupied colonial lands known as Canada, that has kind of become the dominant tribe itself. On college campuses, in government literature, uh, certainly in the arts community, the anti-tribe has become the dominant tribe, but it continues to present itself as oppositional. So you often will see, it's kind of hilarious actually, like you often hear activists or educators saying, we have to disrupt education. We have to disrupt the dominant narrative. And I look at, and I, then I look at who's funding these organizations and it's like the major banks, it's the Canadian government, it's the provincial government, it's the city government. It's, so I was like, well, who are you going to disrupt? Like, you, you know, your whole activist career is based on getting grants from every major institutional player in Canadian public life, including in many cases, big publicly held corporations. Yeah. So the conceit that you are disrupting anything is wearing kind of thin 
because at least when it comes to the commanding heights of Canadian education, activism, media, a lot of people would say what needs disruption is kind of this incessant dogma that is, is built around a kind of Canadian anti-tribalism. And I think there has to be a balance. Like, I don't, I don't want to live in a society where it's illegal or even highly stigmatized to criticize your culture or your government or, or your history. Like Canada's done lots of terrible things. It's, it's like every country. Um, I would say maybe it's done, it's less blood soaked than, than most countries, but I also don't want to live in a society where talking endlessly about that. And more importantly, regarding it as a stain on your own personal airsats, religious soul becomes its own kind of cult. And unfortunately that's what a lot of Canadian public life has become sort of rituals that channel this this movement because you see a lot of people some of the same people who say oh i'm a guilty settler living on stolen land and i shall forever work on reconciliation and they're often the same kind of people who will say uh, i'm a white ally who supports black lives matter and i will forever think about my white privilege and ways to erase myself from the white supremacist power structure and then they're also the same kind of people who are like, I am a heteronormative cis straight person who is conscious of my privilege and endeavors on a daily basis to help trans people and non-binary people navigate this intensely phobic society we live in. A lot of these ideas are fungible. It's kind of the same movement. It just projects itself on different aspects of the human condition. Hi, everyone. This is Quillette podcast host Jonathan Kay, the same guy you were just listening to, with a short interruption to remind you that this podcast stream is just one of Quillette's editorial offerings. We also have the Quillette Cetera podcast, where you can hear from my colleagues Claire Lehman and Zoe Booth, and our main website, Quillette.com, which is packed with great essays and journalism. This includes our recently published inaugural installment of Herbert Bushman's series on the Dark Ages, titled Rise of the Goths. If you're a fan of our other recently launched historical series, Greg Cable's Nations of Canada, you're going to love this one too. Also new this week is Kevin Mims on Marriage and Happiness, Samuel Cronin on Shelby Steele, and Angel Eduardo on Tolerating Intolerance, the Free Speech Paradox. And now back to the Quillette podcast. So I, I have an outsider's perspective to this country. I just look at it, observe, talk to people. And like I was with my friends and, you know, I was like, why does everything about have to be about either white aggression or white guilt? I, I actually asked this to my It's friends. actually incredibly narcissistic by white people is they think that people who aren't white go around thinking all day about what white people think about them. Yeah. Which they don't. I could see it as an outsider, but I did not, like, I would hear my friends, they would constantly self-flagellate on Facebook. I had to unfollow some of them. I'm like, just stop. I Yeah. So I, for me, that was, do you remember a couple of years ago, there was that horrible Islamophobic attack in Christchurch, New Zealand? Yes. The guy put it on Facebook and I mean, it was just a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Yes. But I remember there were people I respected here in Canada who said, it is the duty of, of every white person in Canada to reflect on the white supremacist culture that allowed this to happen. And I remember thinking like some racist nutbag on the other, literally on the other side of the planet does this horrible thing and I have to spend the day in church. What? No, but it's like for some people it's Yom Kippur every day. And yeah. I'm like, 
there's horrible people doing horrible things around the planet all the time. And if I have to get on my knees and beg for forgiveness because of all these nutbags, there's 7 billion people on the planet. Like a lot of them are nutbags and a lot of them are white and a lot of them are male and a lot of them are straight. So I'm not going to apologize for stuff that every member of that group yeah, does. Like it's so just, true. we all fall into 50 different categories. It's frustrating. But it's, it's, it's a part of that reflex that says, I'm going to apologize for what my great grandfather did. The fact that this guy's white and living in New Zealand, I don't know this guy. I mean, yeah, he's a horrible, horrible person. And it became very difficult because you know what? So as you and I are, one of the reasons we're friends is we both like to laugh and tell jokes and, yeah. and, and see life in a funny way. But once that person posts that thing on Facebook and, and everyone in the comments is required to say, yes, you know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, um, immediately it destroys my capacity to bond with that person in any kind of real intellectual way, which requires an allowance of context, of irony, of satire. It's not something I can even put because it would be seen as so insulting as get off your knees. You want to make the world better? Go volunteer at your local food bank. You know, yeah. sitting here reciting prayers about your the white stain on your soul, is it's not going to help the victims in, in New Zealand. Which, by the way, I know people live in New Zealand. It's a very enlightened, liberal society. The idea that it's a white supremacist society is, is, is ridiculous. There are, there are criminals in every society, and if we define ourselves according to the worst specimens of humanity, what does that do to public debate? It's like, I mean, it's, it's no better than defining ourselves by reference to the saints and martyrs of our society exactly. and saying like, well, you know, I, I'm so proud to be a white person because of this heroic thing that this white guy did the other day. Like I would never, it'd be crazy to think that. But much in the same way, I'm not going to think, wow, I really have to work on my racism because some nutbag in New Zealand did this. Like it's, everyone would know it's crazy to think of the positive example of that. We should also think of it as crazy in terms of the negative example of that. Yeah. You know, I have gone through the whole process of being someone who had faith, then lost his faith, then who went into the phase of the ultra hyper patriot phase. I have lost all of that too. That's why I'm just all over. The when you say hyper patriot, you mean like, Indian? My country pitch? is amazing. Okay. I, mean, I don't think India is bad or anything. I live there by choice. It's done choice. some pretty incredible things. Yeah, okay. I, I live there by choice, not by compulsion. Uh, I, I have the choice. I've been married to a Canadian, but uh, I could have moved to Canada anytime I wanted to. But I still stay there. My country has problems, uh, like any other country, uh, in some cases more. I've just lost that maybe a, a moment of tribalism in my brain. It's not that I'm a globalist or of any kind. I still believe in nation states. I believe in boundaries. I believe the idea of a nation state still makes sense from a governance perspective, not from any other perspective. I think it's easier to govern when you have nation states. You get, and especially in a neighborhood like India, which has Pakistan as a neighbor, we're a very hostile neighbor. Oppositional geopolitics can sustain national tribalisms. Because if you always have to be on guard against, you know, if you're if you're in South Korea and you're on guard against North Korea, Pakistan, India, Russia, Ukraine, uh, for many years, Canada, United States, there was like this fear of cultural takeover of Canada by the yes. United States. So these kind of oppositional geopolitical contexts can sustain nationalism as a tribalizing force. Yes. Right now in Canada, I mean, Canada doesn't have a Pakistan. Canada doesn't have a North Korea. And even the United States, like Canada used to have a nationalism that was based on a kind of cultural fear of mm -hmm. U.S. takeover, that's been destroyed by social media because 
Canadian progressives now feel the sense of kinship with American progressives and American conservatives and Canadian conservatives now feel this kinship. So social media has caused a vertical sort of tribalism along ideological lines, as opposed to the horizontal tribalism that you saw at the the Canadian-Canada-U.S. border. So as a result, this is one of the reasons that, that Canadian progressives have gone so loopy is they don't just have a God-shaped hole in their brain. They have an anti-American-shaped hole in their brain because the entire progressive Canadian establishment during the cold, late Cold War period, even very early 2000s when I started work as a journalist, had a, I would say, well-founded fear that Canada is this tiny country and we're going to get swallowed up by American sitcoms and American singers and American politics and American trade and they're going to swamp our market with their products and no one's going to watch our TV shows and no one's going to read our authors. And so this whole idea of cultural protectionism, although I, I thought a lot of this was overwrought, at the very least, it had the benefit of creating a kind of bonding idea within Canadian intellectual circles that say, well, you know, we stand for something. We're beleaguered by the United States and we have to take steps to protect this identity. And it's a positive identity. Being Canadian was seen as this kind and gentle thing. Pacifism, multilateralism. You know, as recently as the mid-2010s, this progressive magazine I used to work at, like I think its motto was, the world needs more Canada. And just a couple of years ago, the idea that the world needs more Canada suddenly became like hate speech. The world needs more Canada? It's like the world needs more genocide? Such a decent society, Canada. It's a wonderful society, but in the late 2010s, there was this very sudden and abrupt phase shift among Canadian progressives where it went from Canada is a light unto other nations in regard to pacifism and multilateralism, as opposed to the United States. We had a, a thicker social safety net, and there was a lot of pride. And in the space of just a few years, that was just inverted on itself, large part, not entirely because of social media, but that was a big factor. And suddenly it was like, we're no different from the United States. We're a blood-soaked genocidal state, especially in regard to indigenous people. Uh, We went in hard for the Black Lives Matter movement, despite the fact that Canada's... Didn't even have any issue over here. But look, racism affects every society. Yeah, I mean, I faced it in my college over here. You now have this movement in Canada that insists that Canada was a historically active mover on the slave trade and that we should be apologizing for our role in the slave trade. And despite the fact that the British empire abolished slavery several decades before Canada came into existence, Mm -hmm. but it has become this mainstream position in Canadian progressive circles that no less than the United States, Canada was a player in the global slave trade. It is completely ahistorical, but if you point out the fact that Canada came into existence several decades after the British Empire abolished slavery, you're shouted down as being some kind of denier of Canada's historical crimes. But the real root of it is that a lot of the people who are making this point, they live their lives on social media, and in particular, American social media. And so when the United States went in for Black Lives Matter, we went in for Black Lives Matter. In a way, the United States really has taken over Canadian culture, which was, as I said, was once the greatest fear of Canadian progressives, but they've taken it over through social media and they've taken it over, I'd say, from the left and through academic movements that have kind of turned a lot of Canadian progressives into clones of their American counterparts because they all inhabit the same social media bathwater. 
Like I remember Justin Trudeau doing his performative uh, song and dance for Black Lives Matters very clearly. Oh, he went down on one knee. Yeah, he went down on one knee, yeah. and uh, and uh, he just announced that he's coming for the G20 summit to India. I just hope he doesn't dance like a Bollywood star. He is not going to do that Joe again. John. He's definitely not. No, a hundred percent. He's not. He's going. You know what? He's going to be a suit and tie, and he's going to get off the plane. And I guarantee. If somebody plays some music, you'll see his body start to twitch, but he'll he'll control it. He'll be like, no. Like I don't even understand this bit in your article where you said Trudeau's 2022 action plan instructed Canadians to adopt the term 2SLG 2SLGBTQ1 yeah, yeah. plus instead of LGBT. What what the hell is 2S now? The 2S is a term that was invented in the late 20th century. It means two spirit, and two spirit became this umbrella term to indicate indigenous conceptions of other genders, sexual orientations. The term can't really be defined. In fact, I cited in the article, there was this, an Ontario teachers union wrote a big report, spent a year trying to figure out what the definition of two S is. Mm. They admitted in the report that we can't figure out what two S means, but to be two S, all we know is that to be two S, you have to be indigenous and anti-colonial. I'm like, wait a sec. You can't even tell me if it's a gender identity or a sexual orientation, but you are telling me that you have to have a certain kind of political attitude to qualify for it. And again, this was an Ontario teachers union that spent a year looking at the issue. Like the document they produced, which I read and I I cited in this article, was supposed to favor the use of the 2S term. Like they were trying to support it, but they couldn't figure out how to define it. And What's happened is the term 2S, first of all, it's completely reductionist. Like Canada was inhabited by hundreds of different indigenous societies before European contact. Some of them, it's true, absolutely did have categories they used for maybe what we would now call effeminate men or, you know, every society has to find ways of integrating everyone who defies gender roles in their society. Um, Yeah, I can understand. My society does. Sure. And there's some truth to the this idea that all these societies had these these categories, but 2S became this reductionist term that basically meant what a white person conceives of as an enlightened indigenous person who has like blue hair and cross dresses. That's kind of in the Canadian arts and activism community. It was sort of like every white person's understanding of this mystical indigenous gay slash trans person, except you weren't really supposed to call them gay or trans or non-binary because... No, it's 2S, this term no one can to this day can define. But the real political function of the term 2S has been co-opted by white people, which is to give this sort of aura of ancient mystic indigenous wisdom to what is essentially a white campus upper class movement. Absolutely. And it is culturally imperialistic it is appropriative yes. it's all the all the thought crimes that are attributed to right-wing people in canada this is <laughs> it's a paradigmatic example of it it's, yeah. it's embarrassing on the other hand the movement has actually has a lot of profiteers because if you're looking for a grant if you're looking to be on some kind of literary panel if you're looking to get your poem accepted by um some kind of recherche canadian magazine if you can say, not only am I indigenous, I'm two-spirited. It's like you check two boxes. The editor or the recruiter... Then cannot say no. They, well, they can, maybe they can say no. They, they've said, well, we have someone who's three-spirited. But they can't ask you 
what exactly do you like? We know what transgender means. We know what gay means. Non-binary, we kind of know what it means. Yeah. Two spirit is the only thing where it's like, don't ask. You're not allowed to ask, literally, because it's seen as something that's opaque to you and me. Again, this is in the document I cited. You have to be anti-colonial to get it, and you have to be indigenous. Like it's it's a racial essentialist form of gender identity where unless you have the correct racial bloodline, you can't do it. It's, it's a really weird thing that backdoors us into kind of race essentialism. If I said, well, I'm, I'm, I have this gender identity that only Jewish people can have, that would be weird. People in Canadian society, if I say I'm like, I'm J spirited, you don't get it because you don't go to synagogue. That'd be pretty screwed up, but it's the same logic. It's absolutely the same logic. And, I, and they say, well, what do you have to be to be J-spirited? So it's like, well, you have to be Jewish and you have to oppose anti-Semitism. That's the same as saying you have to be indigenous opposed to... This sounds like creationism. And uh, I don't know how else to say it. This is like uh, some left-wing it's really progressive... It's very screwed up. Left-wing progressive flat-earth shit. But this gets, <laughs> this gets back to our original thing. It's like the same kind of people who are buying dream catchers for their cars and... They wear special bracelets to keep off evil energies. And there is this hunger, and I get it. I mean, there's this hunger for a conception of the universe. It always wins, whereas John. It does always win. And it always wins, it, no yeah. matter how much you and I try. Yeah, and, and, I, I, and again, I'm, I'm not an anti-religious activist. You have a more coherent worldview when it comes to this stuff. I'm more like a professional eye roller. I don't offer... Leave me alone. Yeah. You're the old atheist who just wants to be left I, alone. I don't want to go to synagogue. I'm the Jew who doesn't want to go to synagogue. And, and, and you can't fool me by saying, well, it's not a synagogue. It's, it's a land acknowledgement and a pronoun check and a DEI session. Do you want to come? I said, no, no, no. You, you think I'm stupid? I know what a religious service looks like. Just because there's no Torah doesn't mean it's not religious. It's just insane. But, I, but I'm not starting my own church. I'm not starting yeah. my own synagogue. I just don't want to go to yours. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. You know, John, people like you and I, sometimes uh, maybe we can end it over here. And, uh, you know, people like you and I, we don't realize how much religious privilege we have. This woman <laughs> was built by religion. We have media privilege. Yeah. I mean, see, this thing, we can be professional shit disturbers. The notion of privilege, I, I don't discount it. that. Yeah, there is privilege. Privilege, money, access to capital, access to education, good health. You know, you travel around the world. I, uh, I don't travel as much as you, but I'm able to get on a plane and go places and have fun. And But the other source of privilege I have is that I have this job where I'm able to take the piss out of things and people pay me money for it. Yeah, Whereas most you. people, including probably most people listening to this, don't have that privilege. If you say something that the people you work with disagree with, left or right, unlike us, we get rewarded for it. This is one of the forms of privilege I unironically acknowledge. Yeah, I, I and, and and I understand, which is why I, I feel at times for people like you and I, it is our moral responsibility because we have been blessed with a blessed, not in a spiritual sense, but just blessed. But you know what? The reason I do it isn't because I feel more responsibility. The reason is I can't shut up. If I if I see <laughs> this crap going on, I don't know if you have this in India, but you have it in your neighborhood. These people who put up signs on their front lawn says in this house. We believe in, and then it just lists this laundry list of progressive tenets. No, they would be called crazy. In India. So, but we had this, it starts in this house. 
And then it says, we believe the following. And it's like essentially a political statement okay. of like hyper progressivism. I'm sure you've seen it without realizing. Maybe you thought it was a fir- religious symbol. Yeah, of course. It's a mezuzah. It's a mezuzah. Yes. It's, a, it's a lawn mezuzah. Just in the same way, like having seven masks on your face is yeah. a face mezuzah. Or having an ohm symbol or a cross outside yeah. your house. Yeah, uh, by, by this sign we shall conquer. 99 out of 100 people pass that guy's house and don't say anything. I'm the guy who wants to knock on the guy's door and say, really? Like, you know, just, is this for a tax, a religious tax? Shit starter. But I have to, I have to remind myself, it's his right to do that. I have to remind myself, it's his right to wear seven masks when he's playing golf by himself. It's his right to tell me his pronouns. It's his right to say a line of thought. And it is his right. I love the fact that I live in a country that people can do all this stuff. I just don't want to be forced to do it myself. That's the only thing I don't want. I think that's that uh, we could not have uh, ended ended this discussion uh, in a better way, John. I it's always a pleasure talking to you. I uh, I always look forward to meeting you whenever I'm in Toronto. You know, uh, at least once a year we get to meet. We get to hash things out yeah. uh, whether the world has collapsed or not. But I wish you all the best, and I hope to see you once again next time. One day we're going to do this in India. Oh yes, uh, in my house. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events.